Hello, and welcome to Speaking of College of Charleston. I'm Tom Kniff from University Communications, and on today's episode, I'm speaking with geology professor and paleontologist Scott Persons, who is here to tell us about his latest discovery, a new species of plesiosaur, a giant marine reptile that swam the seas when dinosaurs roamed the land some 70 million years ago. Welcome, Scott. So describe the sea monster for us. Tell us about it. Okay, so the critter is called Serpenta sucops, and as you said, it's a plesiosaur, but it's an unusual one. Now, now being a plesiosaur, it has some standard anatomical characteristics to it. Plesiosaurs look a little bit like if you took a sea turtle and removed the shell. They've got really big paddle-like front and hind legs. Uh, and beyond that, plesiosaurs generally come in two basic flavors. There are plesiosaurs that then have a really, really long neck and a tiny head on the end. And then there are the very scary plesiosaurs that have got a short neck and then an enormous crocodile-like head with really long, scary jaws. Well, our animal is sort of like a combination of those two. What makes it so weird is that it has got a very long serpent-like neck, but then also very long crocodile-like jaws. And that's how the animal gets its name. Serpentosucops means the snaky croc face. <laughs> snaky croc face. I love that. Uh, and what is the point of the long neck? That's sort of its, its most telling or significant feature. Oh. Yeah, so the animal's got 32 vertebrae in its neck, and that's a lot. Now, that's not nearly as many as some plesiosaurs have got, but again, it's weird to have that combination of a long neck with also the long jaws. When we take a closer look at the individual vertebrae that make it up, when we look in particular at the vertebrae that are present at the very base of the neck, so near the animal's shoulders, um, you can see that the articulations between them are very flexible when it comes to moving the neck side to side. So the animal could swing its neck left and right very easily. We can also see these structures called neural spines, which are these pokey bits on top of the vertebrae, are very wide, and they actually get wider as they expand uh, upwards. That's unusual. But those are indicators that attach to those bones were particularly large and strong neck muscles. Again, the particular neck muscles you would want for swinging your neck side to side. So whatever the animal's doing with its neck, it seems to involve this lateral motion. What I think is up with Serpentosucops is that it's very, very good at striking to the side. That this is an animal that would patrol itself up alongside a school of fish or a group of ammonoids, something like that, and then very quickly, very powerfully swish its neck to one side. Those long, skinny crocodile-like jaws would extend its reach even further and meet a minimum of hydraulic drag as it goes through the water, and then it could snag hold of even a very potentially uh, fast-swimming, uh, quick aquatic prey. Wow. <laughs> Very, very interesting. Um, what is the significance of your discovery? 
Well, it's it really is unusual to find a plesiosaur that has got this combination of traits. When I was an undergrad student taking my paleontology classes, I was taught there are only those two varieties of plesiosaur. So it's always it's 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 very weird to find this mixture. And weird things in science uh, are are very cool, and they can have some larger implications. In this case, what we think is going on is that Serpentosuchops represents a lineage of plesiosaur that was evolving to do something different from the other plesiosaurs, those more standard uh, anatomical forms that shared its same environment. We think this is an example of what we in the biz call ecological niche partitioning. So that's where in order to avoid competition with some groups of species that are already established in the ecosystem, you evolve to do something different. You sort of strike out on your own. Thanks. In this case, to the side. <laughs> uh, um, so, and the fossil was unearthed in 1995. W why did it take so long to discover exactly what it was? I, I guess that's just the process of, of, of your work, isn't it? Well, it is certainly very common for there to be a very uh, an extended period of time between when the fossil is discovered and even when it gets excavated in the field and when it's finally ready to be scientifically described. And that's because there's a huge amount of work that has to happen um, in terms of cleaning the individual bones. You don't actually, when you're doing a dinosaur excavation in the field, you don't actually wind up just pulling out the bone itself. You take out all this rock that's encased around the bone. If you try to get out there in the field down to just the bone itself, it'll take you forever and you run the risk of damaging it. You want to do that fine work around the bone, very close to it, when you're in a controlled uh, condition like uh, the laboratory. And in this case, all that lab work was done at the Glenrock Paleon uh, Museum. And it was done by a team of dedicated volunteers who are affectionately known as the Glenrock rock bone biddies and that's because they're predominantly a group of elderly ladies from the community who have formed sort of the equivalent of a paleontological sewing circle around cleaning out the bones now this specimen did take uh, an unusual amount of time even in the preparation stages because there was some very uh, stubborn very clean rock uh, around the bones i know you've spent a great deal of time in the badlands of wyoming hmm. It seems when I've seen that I haven't been there, but I, the pictures, it looks very barren, obviously. How do you even know where to look? I mean, I, I would just be stumbling around there. Sure, the, with, sure. Um, so first off, um, a lot of badlands in uh, Wyoming and the surrounding area have got fossils in them. So the places that look the same in many cases would still be good places for you to go out and look for fossils. Uh, but uh, the badlands can be of different ages. Now, if you want to find dinosaur or if you want to find plesiosaur specimens, and plesiosaur is not uh, a dinosaur, what's from the same point in time, uh, you will first want to consult a geologic map, a map that shows you where the correct rock layers of the point in time that you're interested in are exposed uh, on the surface. And in this case, the spot where our plesiosaur comes from is really a pretty narrow sort of scar on the landscape. It's an exposure of bad lands, not, not particularly long, basically one hillside that is held up because on the very top of this ridge, there's a particularly dense sandstone, a sandstone that's got a lot of iron in it, so it is 
held up against uh, erosion, and that has protected some of the underlining uh, layers. And so it's just this one particular spot where you go out there and you can walk across a prehistoric seafloor. Hmm. So even I could find something is what you're saying. Yes, if you were to come out with us, and you're invited, by the way, if you were to come out with us uh, this summer or, or the next summer, and the College of Charleston runs a regular field program out to Wyoming, you will absolutely find fossils. And so this was once a, a, an ocean out there. Mm-hmm. And how, how that was 70 million years ago, this was, this was ocean. That's right. That's right. Um, so back in the Cretaceous period, indeed throughout a, a lot of the, the entire Mesozoic era, a lot of the interior of North America is underwater. And places like Kansas uh, have beachfront uh, property. And that's because during the age of dinosaurs, we're experiencing prehistoric global warming. Uh, Volcanoes have released a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. There are no polar ice caps. And with no polar ice caps, all that water that today is held up in ice has flooded the world's uh, ocean to the extent that there's a vast inland sea that basically cuts all of North America uh, in two. It extends from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up uh, to the Arctic. In imagining this ocean that you're talking about, could that happen again given global warming and climate change? In a very general sense, uh, absolutely. I mean, here we are in Charleston and we see that happening, right? Sometimes we got to be careful driving home because the local roads uh, are flooded. Um, So yes, in a broad sense, as the uh, ice caps melt, sea levels are going up around uh, the globe. Now, would we reach a point where the interior of North America, where Wyoming is underwater again? The answer to that is, is probably not. And that's because what ultimately wound up draining away the western interior seaway was not a cooling down. Instead, what happened was collision of land masses uh, on the west. And when we've got two continental plates colliding together, there was a general uplift that occurs. So we were actually back in in the time of Serpentor Sukops. Wyoming was at a lower elevation than what it is uh, today. But that that certainly doesn't mean that other parts of North America would not be flooded. And I'm afraid to say Charleston itself would would be among them. Was that the formation of the Rockies then, that that collision of man of land masses that's exactly right that was one of the other uh, consequences interesting um and tell me about the field school you run out there how long how many years have you been doing it oh this our first year last summer was our very first uh go of it so we brought out uh, 12 students uh to the sleepy town of Glen Rock, wyoming um you know we had a significant impact on the town's total population uh for those three weeks uh, but we partnered with the uh, the Glen Rock uh, museum and what we did was, this is a real um, field experience. This is not just a sort of sightseeing tour. We're going out there to do real science, collect real specimens for, for, for my research program. Um, and the students get the experience of working in the museum. Some of them did some exhibit design. Many of them worked in the preparation lab. Everyone had a particular research project to tackle. And then, of course, we went out to the Badlands. And we, uh, we tried to find something new 
uh, which which we did succeed at, uh, but we also went out to revisit some existing uh, quarries. So uh, we worked and will continue to work in later summers, the uh, the Burr Triceratops site. So that's a spot where we've got the bones of at least one really big Triceratops. I was super hopeful we would find uh, the skull this go around. We got very close to finding the skull in that we found uh, the lower jaw. The lower jaw in the animal is just absolutely enormous. It's the biggest Triceratops lower jaw that I've seen. I'm incredibly stoked uh, about it. And there are more bones from the skeleton that are buried that we're hoping to find um, in subsequent summers. We also visited the Glenrock uh, track site. This is a really cool spot where we have got the longest Tyrannosaurus trackway in the world. And on the same uh, layer, preserved probably within at least a day of each other, we've got another uh, track a series of, of footprints trackway and these belong to a duckbill dinosaur so we've got predator and prey preserved at the same spot and that's really cool because it means we've got a control of the substrate we've got the same conditions on the ground that the animals were walking through and that allows us to make some very direct comparisons when we want to try to calculate how the animals were moving and not surprisingly we see that the tyrannosaur is taking much longer strides it's moving much faster it's not running it's just walking along but still progressing at a much uh, faster uh, clip than is the, uh, the, the hadrosaur, its major uh, prey item. And we also work a site that I love, it's near and dear to my heart, that's the Burt Microsite. Now, microsites are not places you go to if you want to find a really big, exciting specimen to stick on display in, in your museum gallery. Instead, they're places that have got a dense concentration of lots and lots of really tiny fossils. Now, that can mean um, small elements from enormous animals. We find lots and lots of teeth of triceratops and teeth of duckbill dinosaurs, a few raptor teeth, and even the occasional tyrannosaurus uh, tooth. But it's also where we find lots of elements from the supporting cast. The smaller animals, which of course, just like today in the modern ecosystem, were uh, vastly outnumbering the larger, the charismatic uh, megafauna. So we've got scales from garfish, and we've got broken shells from prehistoric pond turtles, and we've got teeth and armored scoots from uh, Cretaceous uh, crocodilians. And those are wonderful animals if you want to try to reconstruct and understand the prehistoric ecosystem. And what we see when we look at these specimens is that the environment, the preferred habitat of Tyrannosaurus, of raptor dinosaurs, of Triceratops, was not uh, an environment anywhere near the badlands of Wyoming today was also not the environment that you see depicted in the Jurassic Park franchise. This was not a Hawaiian uh, rainforest. Instead, it was a uh, warm, uh, subtropical, coastal-influenced cypress swamp. Kind of like Charleston. That's exactly right. The preferred habitat of Tyrannosaurus is where we are right now. So if there are any rich sci-fi Scottish uh, billionaires out there looking to perform the Jurassic Park experiment, don't build your dinosaur theme park on uh, Hawaii or in Costa Rica. Instead, consider something like, like the Francis Marion Forest. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Uh, well, I'll be, keep on the lookout for any T-Rex <laughs> uh, as I wander around Charleston. But I know you've been, you've been going to the Badlands since you were young. Is that right? Yes. So... In fact, uh, the Glenrock Badlands is where I went on my very first dinosaur hunting uh, expedition. I believe I was 12 at the time. 
my parents actually lied about my age on the application form. I was legally too young. <laughs> well, that's uh, but you yeah, and it 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 really inspired you to continue on this path. Obviously, it did. Well, I know I'm I'm told that I've wanted to be a paleontologist since I was two and a half years old. I I don't remember that far back. Um, but you know, growing up, I was actually kind of a, a neat and tidy kid. I was not really a very outdoorsy uh, lad, and so my parents were very concerned about this career path that I'd chosen. They thought, well, we'll send him out here, we'll throw him into the, the deep end, put him out in the, the hot Wyoming sun, and have him um, shovel and pickaxe for a couple weeks, and we'll see if he still wants to stick with it. And and as it as it happened, I really just I fell in love with the work and I fell in love with the place. And here you are now. How many how many how many times how much how many hours have you spent out there in the Badlands? Uh, would you say now? I don't know, but uh, since that initial um, uh, visit, that initial expedition, I've gone out there um, uh, without exception uh, every single summer to some Badland fossil uh, locality, be that uh, back to Glen Rock or to uh, Dinosaur Provincial Park when I was doing my master's and PhD work uh, up out in Alberta or uh, on one occasion uh, to the Gobi Desert of, of Mongolia. Well, thank you, Scott, for joining us on the Speaking of the College of Charleston podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Speaking of College of Charleston with today's guest, Scott Persons. For more episodes and to read stories about our guests, visit the College of Charleston's official news site, The College Today, at today.cfc.edu. You can find this and past episodes on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was produced by Amy Stockwell from University Communications with recording and sound engineering by J.C. Kunz from the Division of Information Technology. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.